Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help us build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Incahunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? So listen to this. I was online shopping today for an electric razor. I'm growing a mustache. No, okay. You you okay? You can't use an electric razor on your mustache. You need to get it waxed. It's going to be. But that hurts. It, well, yes, it hurts. No pain, no gain. Think of all of the think of all of the pain that those of us who uh, those femmes deal with all the fucking time. But if I wax it, isn't it going to grow back more? No, no, that's ridiculous. No, it's not going to grow back more. Wives' tails. But I also have... tails or whatever gender tail you want it to be. I also have some beard hairs on my chin. What should I do with that? Look, as as you get to be a human of a certain age, you get beard chins. You don't think it's from the testosterone? Well, all the cis women that I know will agree with that. Um, I think it's from... I, I think yours is from the testosterone... But, yeah, just wax it. Your you girlfriend's think? not going to be happy if you're stubbly. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, friends, this is the, okay, friends, you, you have now gotten a window into the kinds of conversations that Robin and I have on a reg, on the regular basis. On a daily. On a daily basis. Um, sorry that we like dove right into that at the beginning of the podcast, but for real, like I am here to help them be a better version of themselves. That's, that's what I feel like. <laughs> that's what I feel like. I can't with you. I want to be a better version of yourself. Well, you do help me do that. But I don't and, tell and you, it has I don't to do with your mustache hair. That, that are going to harm you, like waxing. Waxing's, waxing, it's a temporary harm. I mean, you get your eyebrows waxed. It's no different. I mean, it might make a little tear come out of the side of your eye, but it's, <laughs> It's not going to kill you. Little tears. Little tears. And trust me, I mean, unless you're going to tell me that you're about to go get trimmed in all the places and waxed in all the places. Which I'm not. I don't even want to talk to you about pain. Because I know that you do that. At times. Yes. <laughs> like when you're going on a cruise. Yes. But you do not. Yeah. Don't even talk to me about pain until you've had somebody between your cheeks waxing your butt hair. Oh. Don't even don't even talk about it. So you don't think I should get an electric razor? I, I mean, you can if you want to. Yeah. I am going to recommend that if you are growing a mustache and you want to get rid of your mustache, you should wax it off. It's going to last longer. It's not going to be as um, – it's going to grow back in lighter, not darker. Oh. Okay. Um, you won't – get uh you don't have the potential for ingrown hairs um which you can get with using an electric razor there are gifts and benefits to waxing i'm just saying consider it yeah or you know do a google search that's what the rest of the world does when they want to know the difference between one thing and another right right (laughs) 
Welcome, welcome, friends. We are discussing <laughs> my... Welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. None of that had anything to do with activism or theology. Or pressing the social concerns. Dr. Robin to look good when yeah. they're out in the streets. I gotta look good. Yeah, I got an image to keep up with. I just got on the phone with the Associated Press, you know? I gotta... And I'm, like, in a tank in my parka pants, you know? Well, some of, us know that some of us know that that's how you look all the time <laughs> because you're a hermit and yeah. you only leave your house unless you absolutely have to or someone has invited you for bourbon. You know, I just had this conversation with my therapist about how how introverted I am and how I love being at home by myself and that I don't have a need to see anybody. Well, I, I mean, I, I know that about you. But I love hanging out with you. I, I love hanging out with you, too. But hanging out means that either you forego your extrovertedness and invite me into your home, or you forego your introvertedness and you get in your car and you come and see me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what I'm going to start doing here next month. I'm going to come on the regular to the chat. What? What? I'm so happy. We're going to work together. We're going to figure out how to build a better world. Speaking of a better world, what is happening in the world these days? I, oh, man. I mean, I, it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, we're going to tackle some of that today. Um, the thing we're not going to tackle is the presidential race. I mean, I'm sure it'll come back to that because the things we're going to talk about have political impl- implications, but. Um, you know, we're at the point where it's, uh, it's looking as if it's a two person race. Yeah. Um, and Warren still has not endorsed either candidate. Warren has not endorsed. Um, a lot of other people are endorsing. You know, Bernie Sanders said, I'm not dropping out. I'm going to debate yeah. Joe Biden and I'm sticking in until, until I decide that I don't want to anymore. Um, you know, much to our chagrin after the most diverse pool of candidates that we've ever seen in political history, we are left with three straight 70 year old white men as our options. Trump, yeah. Biden, and Sanders. That doesn't seem like, um, like, I just feel like we're ready for something different than old white men being in the presidency. I think so too. But I think that if, if the Warren candidacy showed us anything, it's that as much as we thought we had moved the needle with having Obama uh, in the white house for eight years, it is going to be a much harder dance to get a woman in the white house than it will, I think, in in the future to get a, another another man of color. Yeah, a lot of people are suggesting that Biden or Sanders, whoever wins it, it's probably going to be Biden, gets uh, a female VP. Yes, I mean, I look. I think I think either of them have no choice but to name a female VP, and I think they need to name a VP of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I don't know how either one of them get around the naysayers from the other side that are going to come out of the woodwork. You know, all of Bernie's supporters are going to be 
and are already really irritated uh, if, you know, if Joe becomes the nominee. Um, I, I think, I don't know that they will change their mind, but I know they will affirm a selection of a vice presidential candidate by Biden that is not male and is not white. Yeah. Uh, and I think the same goes for, you know, if Bernie were to win the nomination, um, you know, he he is going to have to, you know, put his decision where his message has been mm-hmm. in that, you know, the marginalized deserve not just a seat at the table, but the head seat. Right. And he's going to have to name a, a you know, a, a vice presidential candidate that, you know, that, that speaks to that. Well, I, I want us to remember what Mark Charles said here on this podcast, that our salvation is not in a pro-Democrat position or person. And we know that, I mean, 20 years ago when I was in seminary, I was, my professor, Dr. Nancy Bedford, talked about, you know, it's the same coin, two sides of the same coin. And it's choosing the better of two evils. And I hate that we're in that position. I wish that we could break out of that. And I wish that we could actually have policies that drive liberation instead of legislation that drives oppression. Yes. And I don't know how we can, I don't know how we can advocate for something other than Republicans and Democrats because things are so polarized. Things are driven by ideology. Um, I think even, even with the fear tactics of the coronavirus, the ways in which the administration is talking about it, either downplaying it or fear tactics and, and the rhetoric, the discourse is, about othering and how that is a right-wing tactic to downplay community. I mean, it is, it is, it, it is a, a fear tactic. And yet, you know, we also recognize that if this pandemic gets out of control, um, regardless of how fearful people are or are not those in the pockets of the most marginalized segments of our communities are at a disproportionate risk yeah because of what our structures of power have have done to them systemically o- over over the years that this absolutely. country has been in existence absolutely um and so, you know, everyone that is older, everyone that has a pre-existing disease, everyone that is obese, everyone that has heart disease, um, anybody that is informed by a range of factors that include poverty and the gentrification of communities and larger portion sizes of foods that are less healthy, um, you know, agricultural cultural subsidies and, and how those have affected our ability to get you know, healthy, earth-grown food into the hands of marginalized communities, all those things are a compounding factor to 
the, the fear that we should have, if we have fear, those should be the compounding factors to the fear we have surrounding COVID-19. Yeah. Um, not that those of us who, you know, have seats of privilege, uh, will get sick from it because no. those people like you and me, I mean, yes, we, you know, we may not breathe well, like I'm an asthmatic, Yeah. but it's going to be like, I'm getting bronchitis. Yeah. And, and I have healthcare. Right. Well, but let me say this, that let's say one of us were to get it, my insurance, I would have to cover 60% of a hospital bill. I don't have that kind of money. Right. And I don't have a safety if, if net to match my kids. Right. I mean, the likelihood would be that you are healthy enough that you would not require hospitalization, that you would, yeah. you know, be given antibiotics. And, and yes, you would still have to pay that copay and pay for your prescriptions and your, it would be, it would be problematic and not comfortable for you to have to pay for those prescription fees and your copay, but it would be possible. You are not in a, you are not in a financial situation where you, you know, you physically could not make that happen. Right. It would be uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. It would be an expense. Um, I'm just aware that, the way, because I'm on the health exchange, not everything is covered. And so, like, who knows if the right. medicine that they would prescribe is covered, you know, and th- right. this all brings me back to this is why we need affordable health care for people and right. universal access. And so that it's not choosing whether or not I get a prescription or, or not. Right. You know, um, so that's happening. COVID-19, the coronavirus, that's happening. Well, um, I, think worth, I think it's worth mentioning, uh, just one more thing on, on healthcare. I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, a true, a true healthy society is one that addresses every epidemic, mm-hmm. not just infectious diseases like the coronavirus. Right. Um, you know, I mean, we are, we are far from why why do we not have the same fear over the opioid epidemic right that we have over the coronavirus right now some will say because i can prevent myself from getting addicted to opioids but i can't prevent myself from coming in contact with someone that gives me corona to an extent that's true but we have a gun violence epidemic Right. We have, uh, we, I mean, we have a flu epidemic. Yeah. You know, we've had 52,000 cases of, or 52,000 deaths from the flu just since October of last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are, we are not good in any way, shape or form as a country at addressing epidemic as it happens or as we see it unfolding. Yeah. And, and if we think for a second that we we're going to be able to you know kind of find a cure for this and and get ourselves out of it and and say a little thank you prayer to god that it didn't affect as many as it could have we may we may be able to do that but then mm-hmm. shame on us for not looking down the path at the other epidemics that are staring us in the face that we're right. doing absolutely nothing about right absolutely absolutely all to say that we are not a healthy society and Anna steps down off her soapbox. 
Okay, so that's happening in the world, and the other thing that's happening in the world is the tornado in Nashville. The tornado in Nashville. We, so I'll, I, you know, all of those that are, that are listening to us, I'm sure have, have seen the coverage of what happened last week in Nashville with the tornadoes that came through the city and, and to the east of Nashville city all the way east, uh, into Cookville. I, I texted you early, early in the morning and said, Hey, are you okay? Yeah. And when you finally woke up, yeah, you said, everybody, everybody's been texting me. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and what happened was at 1239, my phone sounded the alarm. So we got out of bed went into the bathroom, we looked at the at the radar, and I'm like, okay, like, I see the radar, but it had already happened. Mm. Like, like, the the thing sounded, and it was, it had decimated North Nashville and East Nashville, and then moved on. It was on its way heading east at that point. Yeah. Um, so we went back to bed not knowing anything that happened. I mean, it was storming, it was, the wind was blowing, but, you know, like, I, I just thought it was a storm. Right. And, you know, a tornado's not going to come through a major city, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so we went back to bed. So when I woke up and I had, I don't know, 50 or 60 messages yeah. from people, what woke me up was my mother calling me because my wow. watch started ringing. And I was like, why is she calling me? Like, yeah. usually, like, she's not going to call first thing in the morning. Right. And I immediately thought of Lindsey Krinks and Andrew Krinks. Lindsey is five months pregnant. Their house was destroyed. And I immediately contacted them to see if they were okay. They were, they were okay. Um, and I started texting everybody around town to see if they were okay, you know. And we, we went and delivered supplies and were helping out with relief work. And I got tech needs to the Krinks who needed chargers and whatnot. But let me tell you, um, the North Nashville was leveled and parts of East Nashville were gone. And I lost my bartender and his girlfriend in the storm. And that's been tragic. And I've been just being available for people and providing pastoral care and whatnot. But it's really, um, I think it's really shown us the, the community aspect in Nashville and, and the importance of community and, and why community is so important. Right. It's, it's shown us, it has shown us both sides, right? It's Mm -hmm. shown us the, the beauty and resilience of community and the necessity of community after disaster. But it is also exposed once again, the horrible underbelly of capitalist predator mentality that, that, that swoops in, in wearing, wearing a, wearing a savior's robe (laughs) and, and attempting to, to position themselves as if they are really there to help when all they mm-hmm. are there to do is continue to make things worse. And you right. have seen that happening in North Nashville a lot. Right. So, so as early as Tuesday afternoon, 
this is just right after the tornado. Um, the, the vultures, as they're calling them, came in and started making cash offers to people whose homes were lost, significantly undervaluing the property. Right. And if you're, you know, and if you're in a position where you don't have a home, you don't have insurance, you might take that money. Right. To try to figure out what to do. And this is how gentrification happens. And this so, is one-way gentrification. This is what, yeah, this is yeah. one-way gentrification happens. And so there's been a lot of work to figure out how to keep North Nashville from turning into disaster capitalism and gentrifying even more. And, you know, it's a historically black neighborhood. After the 2010 flood, people were um, pushed out of East Nashville into North Nashville. So... You know, there, there's a history here of disaster capitalism and gentrification, and we're doing all that we can do to make sure that that doesn't happen. I wrote an article for Religion News Services detailing this, asking people to give to Gideon's Army or the Equity Alliance right. to support North Nashville. Um, but it's very, it's a very scary time. It's a very unsteady, unstable time. For North Nashville, East Nashville is going to be fine, right? Because right. these are these are people who have moved into a historically black neighborhood, have gentrified it. It will be fine. What we don't know is if North Nashville will be fine, and that's where our energies and efforts need to be in our conversations, in our analysis, and getting our hands dirty. Right. They um, and then let's not forget the the you know the really decimated rural areas. You know, east right. of Nashville proper, um, extending all the way to Cookville that yeah. are also experiencing, um, the same kind of horror that North Nashville is in that, um, you know, many of them don't have the ability to right. uh, rebuild or rebuild as quickly as is necessary for their mm-hmm. families. Um, I was actually, I was really stunned. This is a little bit of a, change of subject, but not really. I was really stunned after the tornado in the aftermath of the tornadoes and the the kind of conversations that were happening in media and the ways that a lot of a lot of journalists were characterizing what or and stereotyping who they believed to be the victims of this natural disaster, that all of the people in Nashville um, are going to be fine, are strong, are privileged, are going to, you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps like they have every other time something has happened. And aren't we lucky that Nashville is so resilient? Mm. And in the same breath, you know, using derogatory terms and minimizing terms for those people in central Tennessee, in the Cookville area, doing a lot of, you know, talking out of their ass about things they don't know, you know, that, 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 that part of the country is just inhabited, you know, by folks who live in double wides and single wides and, you know, no wonder they got hit so hard and, and just mm-hmm. simply not knowing the terrain of the state and the way that Cookville and, and Cookville surrounding areas 
are and have the possibility to be equally as resilient mm-hmm. as Nashville is. Um, now, I mean, some of that is, you know, people know Nashville and, and, and it's a, there's a familiarity there. Yeah. But I was really, really just super frustrated with the lack of knowledge and the lack of care that a lot of people in the media were, were kind of dishing out. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, like I said, literally talking out of their butts, mm-hmm. um, about things that they didn't know. And it, it just, it really, I mean, I, I know a lot of people in, in the Cookville area. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it would be, it would be like saying that, you know, my city is as impoverished as, um, you know, as, as a, a, a small town. Yeah. Is. And it just, it just, it really, it just was really irritating to me. Well, I, I found it really interesting that, you know, this happened late Monday night, early Tuesday morning. And none of the national media was covering the tornado and the, the ways in which the tornado decimated Middle Tennessee. And everything was on electoral politics. And it made me wonder, what is the agenda of media? What are we, what are we, what are we, you know, Adrian Marie Brown says, what you pay attention to grows. And so, we are paying attention to electoral politics. So of course that's the thing that is on everyone's mind. Right. But is that actually the wrong thing that we should be doing? Should we be paying more attention to communities and local organizations rather than national media coverage? And I, and I don't know the answer to that fully, but I do wonder about it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I would surmise that the answer is, begins with yes, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that, or yes, and that, yeah. that it is always in our communities and in the small, intimate, empathetic ways that we are with one another, that growth and uh, liberation occur. Mm-hmm. And yet, because we are people, all of us, in the United States, specifically people who are held and knit together by a democracy that has the potential to be both helpful and harmful. We sit in that tension all the time. Yeah. And so, yes, I think we should be turning our communications and conversations and focuses to a more local and community-based level. And at the same time, if we aren't cognizant, not just, and not just kind of peripherally aware, but truly understanding of what's happening in this political system, in this democracy, then all of those structures of power that have the potential to harm us long-term and harm others long-term will never be mitigated, will never be mm-hmm. dealt with. Um, and so it's, I, I, I would say yes and, or yes but. Which, which is why maybe something like podcasts can, can help mitigate some of, some of the corporate media agenda 
and really raise awareness to where things need to be focused on, right? Uh, I think about what we're trying to do, raise awareness to pressing social concerns, provide analysis, and do it in a way that is neither Republican or Democrat. We believe we are a justice-inspired collaborative that, you know, I mean, maybe I would say follow the ways of Jesus, you know, if I wanted to be real Christian. But I want you to be real Christian, and I agree with you. Like, I, I guess yeah. for me, it is following the ways of Jesus, but um, you, you be you, boo. You be you. Thank you, love. Um, I just... I just, I wonder, I just wonder, um, I just wonder how, um, you know, our, our work can really help shape the public narrative that, that is being eclipsed and erased and undermined by a national corporate media agenda that seeks to only serve the establishment. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope, I, I, I hope that, I, I hope that the, that some of the, um, missives and, you know, ways that we drone on about things ask, uh, plant things in others. Yeah. Um, for them to identify, you know, what's needed in their own contexts and, and how they can get their, their hands dirty in the work. Yeah. Um, I, I want, you know, you know me, I want more than anything for uh, my work to matter, not in any way from an ego standpoint, Mm -hmm. not to matter because I need to matter, but that the work needs to matter because the work is work that's done from a place of attempting to bridge Mm -hmm. and attempting to to cross, to cross, you know, radical boundaries so that we're all free. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I want to bring up and, and get your sense on, I've not shared this with you yet, but one of the things that happened last week is in the midst of tornado reactions and trauma and secondary trauma from seeing the decimation and whatnot, everyone thought that they were right in how to respond to this. And I'm wondering, how we could actually build a more cooperative humanity instead of, and for me, I followed the channels of the leadership in North Nashville, and that's how I approached responding to relief work. But a lot of, a lot of white folks, you know, thought that they had the, the currency on what, what was right to do and whatnot. And I wonder, how do we encourage the dominant culture into a more cooperative relationality, a cooperative humanity, so that when these things happen, and they will happen more and more and more, that we cooperate instead of trying to jockey for position to be right? I wonder if you had any ideas about that. Gosh, I wish I, I, wish I knew the answer to it. Um, and I, you know, it brings up a couple of things for me. Um, it is a, it is a natural reaction for white people to 
believe that their answers and their ways and their solutions are the right ones, um, the best ones, even if there are alternatives. I mean, we are, we are so, I mean, supremacy is embedded so deeply in everything that we do and every conversation that we have in ways that we don't even realize we are, we are, we are perpetuating it. Because we've internalized it. We've so. internalized it so much. And, yeah. and so, you know, this, this, this divesting of supremacy within our own beings, within our, within our own context and our own, you know, understanding of right and good is, is, is a really, really difficult one to, to have. It's a conversation that's very hard for a lot of people because I think, I think a lot of us white folk can look real clearly at uh, racism and implicit bias and things that we, um, things that, things, things that uh, we are able to recognize in, in their immediacy much, much faster than we are our own supremacy. Yeah. And the way we then move that, move and, and breathe in the world as a, as a supreme being. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you have the same conversations around, you know, around mission work. I mean, I, I am, I am, and continue to be highly frustrated with churches and organizations that send youth groups and teams of people to do, you know, mission work and in, in, in places in the world other than where they live. And perpetuate this understanding that, you know, you, you come back, you, you, you receive so much more than you give mm-hmm. bullshit. Well, sure you do. You do because you are a supremacist. Right. And you are not used to the ways that, um, you, you have to break down that that within that that is inside of you. I mean, right. you come back feeling that way because a little bit of your of the supremacy culture was chipped off of your block. Yeah. And 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 we think of it as you know, grace and 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 a gifting of ourselves and and it, I mean, it's just so harmful. But it's still so, a cold and problematic in so many ways. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about friendship lately. And part of this comes from Trip Fuller and I are going to do uh, an event. We're giving lectures in Colorado Springs next month. Shout out Trip Fuller. And, um, so I've been thinking about, and I know that, I know that I'm not one to quote scripture a lot or appeal to the Bible, or whatnot. Um, but in the, I know you're getting real excited for this. Of course, our listeners may not like that I'm about to <laughs> quote scripture. Um, but in the, in the spirit of a cooperative humanity, I wonder if when Jesus said, go and make disciples, the disciples were his friends and it was a cooperative humanity, a cooperative relationality. And 
Maybe that was the mission of Jesus, is to make friends in humanity and to bridge lines of difference. And so if you flip the script and you say, go and make disciples, it is about a cooperative relationality, a cooperative humanity, and it's about friendship. Right. Not about colonizing or being supremacy. And in the same way that I would not go into a friend's home or walk on a friend's yard or enter a friend's vehicle or overpower emotionally a, a friend's child and, and just kind of say, um, like, I, I see that you think you're getting along okay here, but you're doing everything wrong. Mm-hmm. And I have a much better idea. I, I, I have a much better idea for how you should be doing your dishes. Mm-hmm. And I have a much, um, what, don't you think it would be better if you tried to walk your dog this way? Mm-hmm. I mean, all, all of those things that come with the intimacy of friendship and community, mm-hmm. we, we would not do that to one another. Right. In, in community. Um, I mean, I know that when yet, you're at my house. And yet you watch that. <laughs> When you're at my house, I know you tell me what to do because you're afraid I'm going to hurt myself. <laughs> That's true. Um, but uh, it's very different. <laughs> I mean, we watched, we watched people walk onto the yards of people who had lost everything. And, and mm-hmm. there was a, there are a few stories that were told and, and I may not get these a hundred percent correct, but you know, of a, of a family who had, you know, lost a a large portion of their home and there was a couch on the front yard. Oh, yes. The couch was damaged, um, but the couch belonged to them and a a group or a, a, one or two folks came along and were quote helping. Yep. And said, um, you, you guys don't need this couch anymore, right? It's, it's destroyed. It's, it's not something that you need any longer and proceeded to instantly move it into the dumpster. Right. Into um, a pile of trash. Into a pile of trash. Yeah. Without having a conversation or being at all mindful of any kind of emotional response that the family itself may have had to their actions. Mm-hmm. And the trauma that they were living with and the burden yeah, of losing like, part of their house. Yeah, I mean, and, and what and what happened in their lives on that couch? Mm-hmm. You know, how many children were breastfed on that couch? How yeah. many, you know, how many date nights sitting yeah. in were, were had? Um, how many family gatherings took place? Yeah. To, for us to not have the capacity to look at one another and identify the humanity in one another before we identify the ways in which someone needs to do something differently. It, it's, it's stunning. And well, yet, and God, I, think, Robin, I, I catch myself still doing it. Like, sure, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm far from perfect in that, but, but not, but the, but the, but the cleanup highlighted some real unfortunate, um, ways that we can be with one yeah. another. It, it yeah. really, it really, if it did nothing to those of you who are trying to do better in this work, reading stories of kind of this 
colonialization mentality and the supremacy mentality that white folk brought into the cleanup process mm-hmm. um, should really make you think long and hard about the way yeah. you're doing your work in, in, in the world. You know, it makes me think of a conversation I had with a colleague in Denver, Colorado, a couple of years ago at the American Academy of Religion. It's a conference I attend every year. It moves around every year. And this year it was in Denver and we were having drinks and I was drinking mezcal and, and my colleague said that she doesn't believe in empathy or anything like that. And, and I thought, I mean, I get it on an academic level that, you know, you're doing a project that empathy is points towards some sort of flourishing and maybe your academic project isn't grounded in flourishing, but it reminds me of that conversation where so many of us are ill-equipped to be empathic helpers that we think we're doing good, but really we're just creating more harm. Right. And our help should be a witness, which is really what our, what our focus is on at the Activist Theology Project, this witness of being with one another, being a cooperative partnership and really developing empathy and being in conjunto, being together and there's a lot of that that didn't happen last week. No. The togetherness, the witness, people were coming in and, you know, they were trying to help and, and, and doing so carelessly. And so we see some of the, the remnants of that people posting on Facebook and that, it, you know, breaks my heart that, that, that again, we are failing to be human with one another. And look, I, I recognize that there was a whole bunch of good that happened after after the storm. I mean, there mm-hmm. were ways in which the community astounded even itself. Yeah, um, yeah. There were more volunteers than, than what was needed. I mean, I was delivering some tech needs over to the Crinks and uh, left North Nashville. It was chaotic. And uh, um an NES power guy yelled at me for going the wrong way. And, you know, I simply rolled down my window and I said, in a very calm voice, you don't need to yell at me. And he was like, but if I could tell you how many times people turn this way. And I said, okay, just tell me what to do. Like, you know, people are stressed out, you know, and so here I am just giving care to this, to this man who has probably been working for two days straight. Right. You know, and, and having empathy and, understanding that he's stressed out and he's doing what he needs to do, whatnot. But he said, I'm glad that you're out here, um, but really there are too many volunteers. And so it overwhelmed even the people who were trying to put up power. Now we can discuss whether or not there were too many volunteers or, you know, right. I mean, it just interrupted one, one, his one, one man's perspective. Right, yeah. right, right. But my point is, there was an overwhelming response to North Nashville, which is great because it is an underserved population and we need to, we need to deal correctly and expediently around anti-blackness and the ways in which black communities are underserved and undervalued in our communities. 
and work every day to eradicate anti-blackness and create conditions for these communities to have access to services and not depend on volunteerism, which is empty charity, but be able to have a safety net right. in their communities. Yeah, and you know, if we're if we're going to talk about witness, you know, not to bring up Jesus again, um, but but you mean know, evangelical you? Jesus, I mean, Jesus was one of the prime examples of what witness should look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus didn't, Jesus was with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's Mm -hmm. well. Jesus wasn't there, you know, shaking his finger. Jesus was with her. And, and it was in both the empathy that he showed her and his ability to be with her in, in her, her discovery that, you know, that, that we, we see this, this change occur. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I would challenge if, if, if those of us that are listening can, can kind of take one thing from me away from this conversation today. I want you to, I want you to interrogate the ways you are with others. Mm. How are you with your friends? How are you with your family? Um, and, and, and interrogate what that looks like so that you can not only replicate the beautiful aspects of your witness, with those that you don't yet know, but also so that you can be critical of the shortfalls that mm-hmm. you notice in yeah. ways that you should be with one another better and, 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 and do it and do it differently. Whether, mm-hmm. whether it stems from, you know, your privilege or, or, you know, supremacy culture and whatever it is that you bring into that, um, you know, what is, what does it look like when you are with those that you are in community alongside? I think I would add, I mean, I love that. And I think I would add, how, how do we really love one another into, into this witness? Mm. Because, because witness, there may be a precondition to witness, which is, do we extend care and are we able to receive care to be with someone? Mm-hmm. And so how do we show the kind of love and, and care that creates conditions for a witness for being in conjunto with one another? Which is really what we're trying to do with Activist Theology Project, you know? Yeah. It is. I, I think that's a great place for us to, to stop. I think that's I a, that's a, those questions. Take those questions with you, friends. Marinate on them for the week. We'll see you again next Thursday. In the and meantime, I'm going to figure out my mustache. Meantime, meantime Robin's going to figure out what to do with their upper lip. Uh, and we will, uh, we'll check with you soon. Bye, y'all. Bye. 
Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support the podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray, our friends. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Hands dirty.